we welcome you. Good morning. Good morning to our service. Uh, there's seven of us in this studio, and uh, it's in a living room, uh, thanks to the Browns, and so much work has been done behind the scenes. Um, so thank you very much, uh, video and audio team, and all that has made this, this possible. Uh, we're humbled to be a part of this, and we're asking God to do much through this, but not just uh, today, but on through whatever he has in store for us in the tomorrows. So as I'm preaching, um, it'll be a, a great joy for me to uh, lift this passage up and, and preach it to us. And so I actually have seven faces in front of me, and so I will be uh, reaching out to these seven uh, faces. But I'm told that, that there's some people right out there that are, are listening and looking. And so we just ask that uh, much grace will be given to you, all of you out there, as you listen to and contemplate God's word. And may we, as Brian just said, come to this word as the psalmist David in 63. He just said, oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. My body thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in your sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will praise you. May that be the effect of this message upon us. So somewhat endemic to American identity is this pursuit of happiness. Enshrined by Thomas Jefferson, these words are in many ways the goal of American citizens. Benjamin Franklin, another founding father of the United States, believed that wisdom was the key to this pursuit of happiness. In fact, he taught Early to bed and early to rise makes one healthy, happy, and wise, end quote. And that there is a key that provides escape from the dangers of this world was implicit in his teaching. That wisdom delivers you from foolishness and protects you from all harm. So my beginning question for us all is, is this true? Does wisdom, the ability to see and live in this world rightly, protect us from harm? Will wisdom, as invaluable as it is, insulate us from getting hurt? In other words, is wisdom foolproof? Well, if you have your Bibles... I encourage you to open them to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting with verse 13, and we'll do the 26 verses that follow up to chapter 10, verse 20. In this passage, we will see the author, King Solomon, who at, at this time in, in, in history was known to be uh, the, the, the wisest man on earth. He deals with this topic called wisdom in a very fascinating way. In other words, he, he takes wisdom and he, he puts it before us. And, and he says uh, in verse 13 of chapter 9, 
he, he says, um, this also is an example of wisdom. So he's bringing forth wisdom in such a way that his heart actually said, and this seems great to me. So the end result of this message is by God's spirit and his word that, that our hearts will well up and actually say, this wisdom is, seems great to me. It's very individualistic. It's very personal. It goes right down to us. To me, this wisdom is great. And the way he does that is he takes two truths. Wisdom is valuable and wisdom is vulnerable. And he begins to, to gently move them closer and closer to each other. That They almost seem exclusively apart from one another, and yet he, he puts them together until they touch and tangle through this text. And as he does that, he, he, he oscillates it back and forth, showing us facet one, saying, wisdom is valuable. And then he turns it and he says, wisdom is vulnerable. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to work through this passage in such a way that we actually see these two truths mingled together to form something amazing in our hearts. The structure for this, this text, I don't think it's in front of you, um, but it's, we have it down as two facets or two truths and a takeaway. So we'll look at these two truths or two facets of wisdom and it's organized as is follows. If you want to take uh, a quick note on this, this would be the outline. In chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, we see wisdom is valuable and wisdom is vulnerable in a parable. Verses 14 through 18. And then the writer Solomon takes us to chapter 10, verse 1, and he says, you see this, wisdom is valuable and vulnerable, in a principle. And that's found in chapter 10, verse 1. And then we'll pick up the, uh, the teaching in verses uh, 2 through 15 and notice the same reality in a few Proverbs. And then he works it down, and then the crescendo the conclusion to this is found in verses 16 through 20, and we'll see wisdom. It is valuable, it is vulnerable, and we see it in a person and a place. So that's where we're going today. And so if you have your Bibles, I will pray, and then we'll start reading and teasing out what Solomon and the Spirit has for us this morning. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 13 through 18, we see wisdom, both valuable and vulnerable. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. 
But there was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you very much for preserving your holy word down through the ages. You kept it so that we could have it in a book or a device and we can open it up and read it and contemplate it and depend upon it day after day and year after year. We thank you for that reality. And now I just ask that you will so use this moment to reach our hearts that out of our lips and through our lives, we will say, this kind of wisdom is great. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see uh, wisdom um, displayed before us as valuable and vulnerable first in this parable. So you see a poor wise man in in this parable. A parable is a story. This could be an actual historic event. No one really knows. But it reads to me as kind of a, a parable or a story. And so this, this poor wise man is, is, is uh, in this city and this massive great siege work comes against it. And it's just going to destroy uh, this city and kill the citizens of this town. And a poor wise man with soft-spoken words, he, he does something with those words that, that, that create this unity among this town and this wisdom within this town enough to ward off this great army. And so that's the... the he, um, Solomon is getting at this, this wisdom as being very valuable. The poor man delivered the city. And then there's an adversative stuck in there. It says, yet, verse 15, he was discounted. He was just forgotten. And then in verse 16, it's the same pattern. Wisdom is better than might, though it was despised. And then you get down into 17 and 18, and you see wise, quiet words are good, but were destroyed. So, th- so that's the. This is this is a a um, a type of of, of Hebrew parallel, parallelism that shows contrasts, and yet when you put them together, it forms something brand new for us to to think about. Wisdom is valuable, and wisdom is up to being discounted, despised, and destroyed. It is vulnerable. So right out of the the gate, he comes out with this parable to put these two halves together, and he says we need to contemplate this aspect, this feature, characteristic of wisdom. So then we drop into chapter 10, verse 1, and we read the principle coming out of this parable. Dead 
flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. There you have it. A very succinct way of, of saying it. I was uh, talking with uh, one of my sons. I won't mention Seth's name, but he, he was saying something about um, his, his, um, his school. And um, it was going real good except for this one little thing. And I said, well, that's, that's the fly in your ointment. And he looked at me like I was, well, like an idiot. And, and, and uh, this was the text that I was thinking about. That something really sweet, really good can be spoiled by just such a small, small thing. Now, I don't know much about uh, perfumer's ointment at all, but I, th- I think it, it represents something priceless, a, a treasure, if you will. But I do know something about coffee. And uh, some years back, I was down in Haiti after the earthquake, and they did say, you're going to have to, to uh, drink some of this coffee. It's, uh, Haitian coffee is just like out of this world. It is just exquisite. So when I was down there, I, I got a, a cup of this coffee, and it, was, it smelled like a, an amazing aroma it hit my nostrils. And so I just held it here and was just bringing all this wonderful uh, aroma into my life. And then it just touched my lips and onto my tongue, and I thought, oh, this is the best coffee I've ever tasted. I put it down. And all of a sudden, there went a fly in this treasure. So did it destroy it? Well, in this principle, it does. But I was rather foolish. I picked it out of it and continued to drink it because it was so delicious. But that's the issue here, that, that there's something so priceless, and yet such a small little thing can destroy it. Wisdom is vulnerable in that respect. Solomon continues to go on in chapter, in chapter 10, verses 2 through 15, and he wants to, us to see these two facets interplaying one another, and, and we see this through a few of the parables. So picking up the, the text at verse 2, we'll go down to verse 4. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So here he wants to um, feature wisdom as valuable, verses 2 through 4. He says that wisdom, when it takes hold of the heart, it creates this inclination to go to the right. So wisdom teaches, instructs, and trains the heart to move towards the right. But the fool, well, he or she is inclined to the left. Now, anytime you, you see word pictures in the Bible, you've got to um, think biblically about these word pictures in order to sense what, what, what he's referring to. So, so right, 
the, the, the heart of a wise person is inclined. That is to say, leaning towards or almost a, a run downhill towards right. And so as, as you look in the Bible, places like Isaiah 41.10, um, do not be dismayed, do not fear, for I am with you. I will help you, I will keep you, I will uphold you with my righteous right arm. Here, right is just referring to power or protection. Um, in in uh, Genesis 48, for example, when, um, um, when they're passing a blessing, the, the right hand was to go out and rest upon that person, not the left hand. And so it signifies this, this power and protection and, and blessing upon a person. Um, there are other examples of this, but I can't think of any one better than in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, 33, we see the right and the left. And some of your thoughts are already going to the sheep and the goats. And this is where King Jesus comes uh, back on earth and he's going to divide the human race into two groups. The sheep to the right and the goats to the left. And the sheep to the right, they receive eternal favor. And the goats to the left, eternal disfavor. And so you can see in this passage the valuableness of wisdom. Because when it, it, it grabs hold and it reaches the heart and it actually trains it and, and just marinates it with wisdom, now the person is just desiring or moving towards the right where there's power and protection and favor forevermore. Likewise, in, in verse 4, we see that it creates calmness in difficult situations. Here in verse 4, the anger of the ruler is against you. And, and you're not to leave the place for calmness. I know it's not wisdom there, but, but it's a synonym. It, it, it means like healing comes out and calmness comes out. There's a wisdom lightness about this. Comes out and it diffuses anger. And that's valuable in the midst of the heat of the storm. And so what he's doing here is he's just bringing out wisdom again and he is, he is turning it so you can see one facet of wisdom, namely that it's valuable. But then he turns it right back around and in verses 5 through 10, he wants us to see that nevertheless, it is vulnerable. Picking up the text in 5 through 10, we read, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who he who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. So in verses 5 through 10, he, he takes 
uh, two angles to this uh, vulnerability of wisdom. First, in verses 5 through 7, it simply uh, is just stating that that it's a topsy-turvy world. Under the sun, verse 13, back in chapter 9, you see we're looking at wisdom under the sun, and we're looking at wisdom in the context of what we've seen in this this, uh, book called Ecclesiastes, known as Hebel, or East of Eden. It's, It's frustrating, it's futile, it's fragmented, it's dangerous, it's vanities, and, and, and inside this, this difficulty of this world, we see this wisdom moving out and carving a way through uh, this, this world. As we see in verses 5 through 7, you would think that wisdom would be the ruler and folly would, would, would be under it. But in this world, sometimes it's just not that way. Whether it's in a political world or even in the ecclesiastical world, the, the church world, you, you see sometimes a foolishness rises to the top and, and creates all kinds of, of difficulty for the people underneath and around that. And so wisdom is vulnerable. It doesn't always succeed. It doesn't always uh, become the, the leader in, in, this, in this world. And then he, he, he makes the same point in verses 8 through 10, where wisdom helps. You see that in the last part of verse 10? Wisdom helps one succeed. So there's the, the valuableness of wisdom. But, but then you kind of look at this and you see all the vulnerability in it. For example, he who digs a pit. So you're using wisdom and surveying the ground and figuring out where the hole needs to go, and you begin to, to dig in, in, into the ground, and, and then falls off, and you fall into the hole, and you get hurt. You used wisdom, and yet it's not foolproof. It, things happen, even when you are working within wisdom. You fell into the, the pit, and a, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. So you're, you're surveying this wall and, and it, um, it's not a load-bearing wall and you're going to break it out and, and you dismantle it and all of a sudden uh, something comes out and bites you. And there's no way of knowing that. And yet um, you got hurt. Using wisdom, you still got hurt. Or quarrying stones so you're in this rock quarry and you're picking out these stones and you're you're breaking them up but you're doing it in wisdom and yet you got hurt by some stones he goes on and splits a log and yet was endangered by it so you can see he's starting to build something that that we need to understand wisdom is this this bedrock reality stand on it build on it And yet, it's vulnerable to a fly, to a rock, to a splinter. I mean, these things are pretty small. And yet, they disrupt some things known as wisdom. He continues to work this thing through in in 5 through 10. 
Wisdom helps, but it gets hurt by such small things. Now, th- th- those are parables, but um, some months back, I was, I was in West Dayton, and I, I was doing a house visit, and I um, was um, invited into a house by a grandma. And she had me come into her, her kitchen around this small little table with a little bit of light in there and a few little um, seats that we could sit on that kind of uh, were uh, wobbly. And we sat down and, and uh, I uh, put before her the reason why I was there and she uh, was looking at things and liking some things. And so we were doing some enrollment and whatnot. And she was such a delight. And uh, as we were finishing up, I was looking around the, the uh, kitchen and I just saw artwork. Some of it was framed. Some of it was just kind of tacked onto um, her, her wall or um, uh, mag- magnetically uh, attached to, to the refrigerator or whatnot. And it was just very interesting artwork. And I said, are you an artist? And she smiled and she says, no, I, I'm not an artist. But my granddaughter was. I said, oh, I see. So as, as we were finishing up, I got up and I looked at her, her art and I said, it's just absolutely beautiful. And she, she beamed. But I said, um, but help me to understand. You said your granddaughter was. It, is she not anymore? And she gave me the story. So this 19-year-old about three years ago um, was got all the accolades in high school, and she was very um, popular and pretty, and and she went off to Wright State to get her undergrad work, and and she was uh, in love with a young man who was up north from there, and and one Friday night she was finishing up her her work on on the campus, and and so then she she went to. Uh, go uh, be with him for a couple hours. And she was a um, uh, very wise girl. She um, you know, put on the seatbelt and she did all the things that she was supposed to do. And she went out on to 675 North and she stayed in her lane. And, and, and you could just imagine how her heart was welling up with anticipation to be with her, her boyfriend. And then a man thought that the exit ramp was an entrance ramp and he got out onto 675 North going south and hit her, killed her instantly, and he lived. And this grandmother is sharing this with me, saying she did everything right. She loved the Lord Jesus She studied hard. She was disciplined and diligent and determined. And her future was wide open. And then one stupid choice took her from planet Earth and left a bunch of people extremely sad. Wisdom is valuable. But it is vulnerable. In verses 11 through 15, we pick this same theme up. 
He's not tired of it yet. He wants to continue to roll it over and over and over in our minds. And we see this uh, in, in verses 11 through 15. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of the wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. So here we see wisdom is valuable. Valuable by using skillful, skillful words rather than senseless talking. Wisdom will, will, will shape the, 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 the thought patterns and, and the ability to speak in a way that, that sounds different and helps people around. And you can see that the skillful speaking is far, far better than the senseless talk of a fool. A fool actually thinks that the world is predictable. The wise person says it's really not. We just don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. And the fool continues to talk and talk about the, the future. And his toil just continues to get him uh, weary and weary. And he can't even find his way home. So, obviously, wisdom is the choice. Wisdom is valuable. Then he, he comes to the end of this passage. And he shifts now. He, he shifts from... Um, people and, and just individuals and little parables and principles. And now he gets this big picture to say, say the same thing. And in this picture, you see this, this land. It's a kingdom. And then you see kings that are reigning over this land. And so now he's going to make the same point, but, but he's echoing something that is far bigger far better than just mere skillful ways of living on earth. He says in verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, and some winged creature tell the matter. So now we see the climax or the crescendo of his teaching on wisdom, that it's valuable and it's vulnerable, and you bring those two together to form a vision of the Christian life and how to move forward in a world that is fragile and frail and frustrating. We see this in a person 
and a place. Now, he uses terms that are very um, consistent in the Old Testament, and the New Testament picks it up quite a bit. It's the woe and the blessing or the happiness here. And woe to the land, woe to the land who is being ruled by a fool. But notice how he describes this foolish king. When your king is a child and your princess feast in the morning. And so now we have this king over this land and, it's, and, and now it's cursed because of the king. And the king is known as a, a child. I think what he's getting at here is a, a child isn't discerning, isn't prudent. And he or she just wants to eat candy all day long. That's foolish. Oh, but it's so good, so good. And the princes and the princesses, those that, that the king has, has trained to, to, to uh, put out his oracles and to, to bring out his rule in the land, look what, look what they do. The, 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 the princes feast in the morning. The, the feast, the celebration, the party, the joy is not the issue. It's in the morning? There's, there's, there's no discernment here. A king is, 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 is constantly going after candy and the princes are feasting in the morning. They're, they're popping the wine and their leg of lamb in the morning, and they're just gluttons and drunken. That's not going to help this land at all. And so you get this woe. But then it turns around, and it says, happy. The happiness of the land depends upon the, the character and the wisdom of the ruler. And so all these citizens of this new land are happy. Why? Well, look with me in verse 16, or 17, excuse me. When your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast, but they feast at the proper time. When is this celebration to take place? At a proper time. And, and why a celebration? For strength. Not for drunkenness. And so you have the king who is wise over the, the, the princes and the princesses. And they feast in the proper time. And they're strong. They're not drunkards. And then it oscillates back to, to the fool. Through sloth, the, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. You see the... The foolish ones, they're going to put off everything. They don't, they're lazy. They don't want to work. And it shows in, in this house or in this temple or wherever this is. And it looks very, very bad. But, but then it, it goes right back to the wise one in verse 19. Bread for laughter, wine for gladness, and money answers everything. Probably a better translation would be just making provision for the, the feasts. You can have feasts. You can have the celebration. And so in this land, you see happiness. You see laughter. You see gladness. 
You see proper timing. You see wisdom and strength. Who is that? I know we're just talking about wisdom, but it seems as though wisdom is now personified and it's found in a certain place with a certain person. And so what we're, we're just starting to see here is it's not just book knowledge and it's not just wise living that this passage is about. Rather, it's being ruled by a wise one. It's being helped by and protected by and provided by a son of nobility. Who is that? This passage started off with a wise, poor man delivering the city. I know it's a parable, but there's echoes there. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, we see, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You see this kind of teaching in the New Testament. In, in Matthew chapter 12, that the, the queen of the south came to Solomon because he was the wisest in the, all the land. And Jesus said, but there's something much more beautiful and much more wondrous than Solomon in your presence. Later in the New Testament, it picks up that same imagery and that same teaching. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says the, the Jews wanted signs and the Greeks wanted wisdom. But we, we preach Christ crucified. And to the Jew, it was a stumbling block. And to the, the Greek, it was just flat out foolishness. But to the called to those who are saved, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of nobility, the King over His land, the one who rules over His kingdom. He's wisdom. He gives wisdom. He dispenses wisdom. It's a gift of wisdom. But He is wisdom. And in Colossians, it says... In Him is the fullness of the riches of wisdom. It seems to me that the writer of Ecclesiastes is being used of the Spirit to move us forward and get a little glimpse of something that now on this side of the cross when we look back, we see the Christ. We see the wise one who was sent into this awful world and vulnerably went to the cross and embraced our sufferings and embraced the, the penalty against our foolishness, against our rebellion. And he was not taken. He said, take me for your sake. And he went into the grave and he looks utterly vulnerable, utterly weak, and out from the grave three days later comes the mighty one, the wise one, the Christ himself. That becomes the hope. 
So the, the, the takeaway from this passage is wisdom. Set out to get it, but don't set on it your hope. Set your hope on the wise one. Set your hope on the Christ. Oh, we are to set out to get wisdom. The Bible is replete with commands. Get wisdom. Live life wisely. You're to set out and seek it like a hidden treasure. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Dig for it. Long for it. Look for it. Study. Meditate. Think, think, think. The sources of wisdom. The Bible. Psalm 119, 97 through 100. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The simple ones, we get wise in doing so. Or prayer, James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, any of you, ask of God and he gives richly and lavishes you without finding fault. So where are the sources of wisdom? Bible, Bible, Bible and pray. Ask for much and gatherings whether it's seven or 207, we get together and Colossians chapter three, verse 16 says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with melody in your hearts to God. We're to be wise and we get wisdom in the gatherings and we get wisdom from wise counselors Proverbs 15.22 says that among um, a multitude of counselors is great advantage and success. So these are sources of wisdom, and we cannot recount, uh, um, dismiss this. But we, we have to look into this wisdom, and we have to collect this wisdom. And then, according to 1 Timothy 3, we know these sacred writings that are have the ability to make us wise unto salvation. Set out to get it, just don't set your heart on it. Put your heart on the Logos, the one true word, the wise one, wisdom, Jesus the Christ. And so, coming down in conclusion to this, I want us to just look once again at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13. When we look at wisdom and we see it's valuable and it's vulnerable and they come together and it guides us to the wise one, namely the Christ, do our hearts say, now this kind of wisdom, it just seems great to me. When that takes hold of our hearts and begins to transform our lives, now the unpredictability of this world doesn't take us off guard altogether. And we'll notice that our impatience will go down, our anger will go down, our ability to be resilient will go up. People around us might even sense coming out of us a love Joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, and self-control. In Christ Jesus is salvation. 
And in Christ Jesus, he transforms us into the likeness of himself. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, thanks be to you for sending your son Jesus to die the death we should have died and be raised with newness of life and provide us with that life and provide us with a hope of future. Love you for that. Bless us now as we contemplate this and move it into our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.